So there's one school of thought that goes that we're all in trances already and a professional hypnotist is really just going to help you develop a better one. Hello and welcome to the Lifestyle Show Podcast. My name is Nick Lugo and I'm your host and I'm incredibly excited to introduce to you the guest that I brought on today. His name is James Malone and he's also known as NJ Hypno and his job is literally to hypnotize people for them to create a better lives for themselves. He deals with problems of self-control such as smoking and overeating and he makes sure that people are able to get rid of their habits for good. Obviously, this is something that I am personally incredibly passionate about because I wrote an entire book on this subject. So I want to make sure to get all of the knowledge that I possibly could from this guy. And I want to make sure that everything that I learn can actually be implemented in my book if I find it necessary. I found some of the insights incredibly useful. And I think that hypnosis is something that could be incredibly legit if you use it the right way. He talks a lot about hypnosis and how to make sure that your hypnosis, it can actually be used for good. So without further ado, I want to make sure that you get all the time possible. So let's get this thing started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lifestyle Shift Podcast. Today, I have on me on with me the hypnotist, James Malone, and I'd like to hear more about him. So first, you introduce yourself. Oh, hi, Nick. Thanks for having me on. My name's James Malone. I've been a professional hypnotist. It'll be 25 years this fall. And I always like to say when I talk, people sleep which is a really bad joke, but uh, I help people with just the problems we run into in life, whether it's negative habits, uh, stress and anxiety, as well as some people who have medical disorders and there's a stress component, although I'm not a doctor, but after they've been medically cleared, sometimes it's helpful for things like chronic pain and tinnitus. Interesting. So, so there's the one big question that I want to knock out of the park right away that everybody's interested in. If I go on a stage and, or at least I watch somebody on a stage doing some hypnosis show, is it real? Yes. Uh, I've never done the hypnosis shows personally, but I have friends who, who do them. And it's, the thing is, is those are willing volunteers who basically for that half hour, that hour, the stage hypnotist helps them get over their stage fright. And it's interesting, though, because the stage hypnosis comes up a lot, and it's really on two key things. One is, can you make me do things I don't want to do? And, that you know, frequently that's a fear, because if you ran into somebody with a really bad moral compass, you know, you, you could see where that would be disastrous. And the answer is no. Going back to the stage performer is using willing volunteers. But the second one is, is sometimes people go, okay, he just like snapped his fingers and the person was Elvis or you're pretending they were a banana or something like that. Yeah. And if you come in for a personal improvement at a thing, it's not going to be snapped. Sometimes there's multiple visits and there's going to be some effort involved, Uh, you know, just kind of a mature outlook about change. Uh, But no, uh, those people up on the stage are definitely... uh, experiencing something they, the, the guy I know very well does not use any plants in the audience or anything like that so can you sort of explain what it's like to be hypnotized or sort of you know the process yeah. of getting somebody into that state right okay and that that's a good place to start is okay with with the state but even a little before that we talk about having a conscious and a subconscious mind yeah. your conscious mind is critical rational analytical sees ears thinks and reasons uh Let's say, for example, I'm working with somebody who wants to quit smoking or vaping. Well, okay, consciously, logically, they know that's not a great life choice and they, they need to stop it. The uh, negatives outweigh the positives. Of course. But then you have this part of yourself called the subconscious mind, which isn't really thinking or reasoning. It acts out habit patterns, whether they're good, bad, or neutral. And... Another interesting part about or thing aspect of the subconscious mind, it doesn't like to change habits, even when, really when it's going to be in your best interest. And hypnosis is really just using a naturally altered state of consciousness to give your subconscious mind a redirect. Now, the state itself is not something that's that, that unusual. And uh, it's something we actually go in and out of naturally. And I'll give you an example. Imagine somebody has a familiar commute to work and it takes 30, 40 minutes to get there. Well, they're going to have mornings where they're pulling into their parking spot at work and they're going, oh my God, I don't know how I got here. I just, I forgot the last 10 miles or I felt like I, yeah, I hope I didn't run through that red light. Well, why is that possible? Because after a time that, that, that drive didn't require any conscious effort. 
So the brain just made it a subconscious pattern. So that's in one natural state, but it's kind of similar to like when somebody says, oh, I'm not going to bite my nails anymore, but maybe they're feeling anxious. The next thing they know, their hands up at their face and they're doing it before they realize it. So there's one school of thought that goes that we're all in trances already and a professional hypnotist is really just going to help you develop a better one. Uh, but the experience itself, most people will feel either a pleasant heaviness of the body. Some people feel light and buoyant. Uh, you, your mind might wander a little bit, but that's usually okay. That's normal. You don't become oblivious to your surroundings either. You know, it's nothing like some of the sillier movies. It feels, at least when I've worked with it for, for myself, a kind of a relaxed, focused daydream. You're relaxed. You're open to new ideas, but you're definitely still in control of yourself. So explain to me the similarities between sort of when you're driving to work and you're in that sort of, I agree, right? right? I feel like everyone's gone through that. Like, how did I even get here? I wasn't paying attention the whole time versus the hypnosis where you're sort of overriding those subconscious patterns. Okay. Yeah, right. Because the the drive, it's just kind of happening spontaneously and it's one you've conditioned yourself. And the thing about, when you're working with somebody, whether it be on a stage or in an office such as mine, is it has to be a willing partnership. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, like when I get phone calls from people, you know, I, I try to do a pretty careful uh, screening process. And one of the things is, are is this something you really want to do or is your other half urging you to lose weight, quit smoking, do whatever? There has, you're entering into a willing relationship. And I think that's the key. And uh, basically somebody like myself is there to help, but like, I can't, you know, just go out in the neighborhood and grab people who need to, you know, you need to change. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that would be pretty well received. So. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. So you're saying that when we go into these sort of, you know, this sort of unconscious state or subconscious, right. state, then it has to be mediated by someone else and it has to be, willingly participating well in a way right i mean when it's a hypnosis session absolutely it's a cooperative relationship but people can through for example self-hypnosis learn to program themselves you know really? you what, just what would self-hypnosis be yeah well yeah like one of the some of the simpler techniques are just to i would teach somebody for example how to get themselves in a, in a relaxed state and let's imagine it's an athlete Mm-hmm. And when they're in that relaxed state, they might give themselves a cue to practice a skill they're working on repeatedly because we know that if you practice it in your imagination, it actually changes your neurology and it's almost like you're getting physical practice. Yeah. Um, like I said, self-hypnosis can be really awesome. It does help to have some initial guidance, but people can and do learn it, you know, just from like audio programs, books and the like. So when people normally think about hypnosis, it sounds like a different hypnosis than you're sort of thinking of. So when I think okay. about hypnosis, I sort of think of, you know, the turning myself into a lion or turning myself into yeah. a, a cat and making weird noises and being on stage and things like that. The hypnosis that you're talking about, is it just more of a casual, just changing your brain state? And from the way you're sort of saying it, it's, you know, it, it kind of sounds like, yeah, we're always in this trans state of sort of like a right. semi-hypnosis. Right. You know, I don't have exact numbers, but I I think there's people who figured this out that probably, I don't know, around 90% of our thoughts and feelings and actions are actually almost automatic. Yeah, it was actually a Harvard study. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. 50%. So around 50% of our day, we're actually um, just working on autopilot and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, really. And a lot of people do find that scary. I think they like to think that, you know, they're always in control. And if your habits are good, you know, why worry about it? Yeah, yeah. By the time they come to my attention, it's, you know, they've had a heart attack already, but they're still smoking. Well, you know, that's that's really not the autopilot that you want to be on. That makes Um, sense. So who are the people who do come into you for your actual clinical practice? Well, let's see. I have people, uh, smokers are very popular. I get a lot of people with just kind of stress and anxiety uh, since I reopened the, you know, I was allowed to reopen the office recently. There's a lot of people walking around, you know, really a ball of stress and tension, very understandable. Uh, Fears, which is something I really enjoy working with things like uh, fear of flying. Uh, The one that actually really convinced me to go in the field was a fear of public speaking. 
because I used to have a terrible, terrible fear of it. I would get red face, stammer. It was just unthinkable for me to do it. And this guy, Richard Hart, who was my original teacher, had a requirement in the class that you had actually go for sessions with him. And that's what I worked on. And eventually I got to the point where I was actually, uh, I'm not doing them anymore, but for Hackensack Meridian, I used to be a presenter. I used to two, three times a month, just get get up in front of strangers and talk, you know? So it's kind of convinced me there, but that's a, that's a broad category of what brings people in as well. So what's the process like? So take me through actually your experience of when you uh, be your public speaking. Okay. Right. Yeah. So what was it sort of like? How many times did it take? Things like that. Well, for me, it was like, I think we had two, Doc, Doc and I did two sessions and then I, there were some things I worked on on my own. But it, when somebody comes in, the first thing you want to do is just kind of go through, okay, how long have you had this problem? When do you remember when it started? Because sometimes there can be a negative event or memory that we have to work with that really kept somebody tethered to a negative past. Uh, what have you tried up until now to help it, which is, you know, kind of important to know. And I think the most important one is what do you want? You know, a lot of times yeah. we're not very clear. Like people say, oh, I want to lose weight. Okay, what's that going to do for you? You know, you want to expand on that that outcome. And, you know, then we, we engage in the different hypnotic processes. And also, uh, a big aspect of it, too, is giving people homework, you know, things that they can work on after they leave so they have a different skill set, you know, down the road, which is, you know, very gratifying that they can take care of their problems then on their own. So then take me through this process, right? So let's say I'm struggling with a smoking addiction, right? So when I come into you, what would, what would I actually be doing? What would, you know, how would you hypnotize well, me? How long would it take? Things like that. Well, okay. Most of the times with smokers, I mean, that's a very popular program. I usually see them three times. The first two visits are two days apart because usually people start really stressing by day two or three. Okay. Um, but we basically, I would, you know, the, the hypnotic induction itself, I don't know if you have any familiarity with it. It's really just getting you relaxed and centered and comfortable. Okay. And then we would use whatever information, for example, if you, you were in for that particular thing, why is this important for you? So this is why we kind of got to have a, you know, it doesn't take a long time, but we have to have kind of an in-depth conversation about what, what, what's important to you, you know, yeah. how to, and this behavior that you want to eliminate or change, how does it conflict with your current values? Cause you obviously wouldn't be here, you know, if it was okay for you. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that, that part is sort of like the introduction part. Okay. So they get into the relaxed state and then what happens next? Well, then we move on to, uh, basically what were their perceived obstacles and alter the way that they feel about them. For example, with smokers, a lot of times we do stuff to help them overcome the fear of the withdrawal symptoms, which are really nothing more than a sign your body is healing itself. We'll spend some time picturing what's it going to be like to be breathing easily that you have the energy like maybe for an older person with time with the grandkids you know that you're you're not going to be out of breath just trying to run down the corner after them and then it would conclude with some sort of post-hypnotic cue something they could work on after they leave so if and when they felt some sort of temptation they'd have a tool to deal with that interesting so yeah none of this is you know very extravagant or it doesn't even no. seem that scary, right? It doesn't seem like something. Well, I would hope scary. not. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you say the scary part, I've had people come in and they had some of these misconceptions that it was going to be like a comedy show or I could make, and I'm like, why are you here? You know, if you're yeah. that's, or you must be very desperate to change if you really think I could, you know, make you go out and rob banks for me or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. There was a pioneer in the hypnosis field, a psychiatrist who, I think he passed away in the early 80s named Milton Erickson, excuse me, and his thing was that hypnosis is really all based on natural phenomena. And we're not really, you know, like there's the old hokey pictures, you know, a guy has lightning bolts coming out of his fingertips and he has this magic power. But a, a hypnotist is really tapping into natural phenomena, for example, We've all had that experience of time seeming to go by slowly or quickly. 
Yeah. Even though it was the same amount of time on the clock. For example, when you were in school, if you had an interesting lecture, you kind of ignored how the chair was maybe a little uncomfortable. But if the, it was a boring lecture and that hour could go by, it seemed like in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if it was a boring lecture, for example, you'd notice how hard the chair was and that hour could seem like five hours. Now, so this, for example, the ability to distort your sense of time. Well, if somebody's dealing with something that's unpleasant, we can suggest that they use that same natural ability to speed up time or if they're having a pleasurable experience to, you know, drag things out a little bit. Uh, but there's any of a number of these things, but I, I, Dr. Erickson was very, uh, emphatic on it that we're not doing anything that's really unnatural. These are all processes that people go through anyway, but we're kind of just helping the helping them along. So what exact what exact phenomena do you guys use? So especially, you know, the uh, well time distortions one, sometimes numbness. You know, that same example of being in an uncomfortable chair. Yeah. You naturally turn things on and off all the time. In fact, you know, as I'm talking to you right now, for example, you're not aware of the feeling the way your shirt feels across your shoulders. But I bet as I said that, all of a sudden you had an awareness of that. You're probably not aware of the way the chair feels under you right now. But as I mentioned that, your attention goes there. But it's interesting in that gap, you probably forgot about how your shirt feels. You know, so your brain is always scanning in different ways. And you can learn to direct that attention in ways that can actually be very beneficial for you. So can you, is there, are there ways to do that in sort of the long term? So I know that in the short term, you could tell me like, okay, focus on the way the chair feels on your body and I would be able to focus on it. But for a smoker, you know, they'd probably struggle with, you know, like a week's worth of withdrawal symptoms or same for an overeater. Yeah. I mean, the suggestions don't have to be uh, just in the office. They can extend beyond, for example, Mm -hmm. another thing too with smokers, we would give them something some sort of relaxation technique, whether it's, you know, slow, deep breathing or some sort of distraction. And then eventually, you know, the, the nature would take over and they'd be okay because the withdrawal would be complete. Interesting. So do you guys do anything? And this is something that I, I sort of talk about in the, the book that I have coming out. This is right. You mentioned in your book, right? Yeah. So my book, it's, I'll just give like a brief synopsis. It's yeah, go right uh, ahead. Breaking Bad Habits in 150 pages. And the whole purpose is to be able to help people get rid of these, you know, same, you know, sort of, we sort of have the same goal of smoking, overeating, you know, spending too much time on social media. And part of what a psychoanalysis would say, and this is more of like the Jung and the Freud and all those people, they would be saying that there is some underlying reason as to why you have that, you know, addiction slash bad habit, whatever. And that you need to get rid of that unconscious, you know, belief that you have other than that. So, you know, in my book, I talk a little bit on that, but I I also don't stress it as much. How much uh, do you guys sort of find? As far as like past events and the impact on, on present behavior, the, you know, one, one aspect that I work with is a lot of mindfulness work of that as long as you're in the present moment and you're breathing, you're actually okay. And then when you think about anxiety, which drives a lot of addictive behaviors, a lot of self-sabotage, it's when we travel either to the past of regrets or things that we feel guilty about that obviously can't be changed that are in the past or probably more frequently what they call what if thinking. And there's a lot of that obviously going on in the world. What if this happens? What if that happens? And your body will actually start to respond to that as if it were happening right now. But I think folks nowadays need to anchor in the present moment and go, okay, nothing actually is bad happening to me right now. I'm imagining a lot of stuff could happen. And worry certainly is a natural part. Uh, Actually, a useful skill to some degree. It helps us to prepare for emergencies in the future. But if you're always doing it, it takes you out of this present moment. And, you know, what was that? I think it was in Kung Fu Panda. You know, the past is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. But, you know, right now is a gift. That's, you know, that's why they call it the present. You know, I, I love that one. But, but on a more serious note, when somebody does have, like, trauma that they remember, I have worked, I will work with people for that. In other words, to get the negative emotion out of the memories. And a lot of traumatized people will say, you know, maybe I was abused or this, you know, terrible thing happened to me. It was 20 years ago, but it feels like it was yesterday. Yeah. 
And I can help them with that, but I don't go on like a fishing expedition. Like, oh, you know, your mother didn't look at your cross side when you were five. And, you know, there was a lot of the Freudian stuff that was like that. I don't see that as highly productive. You know, there was a, I can't think of his name. He was a psychologist who said insight is the booby prize of therapy. You know, we, we, we only have right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to be in this present moment, to be that best version of you. But, but I will work with people if they, they feel like they have traumas that they haven't let go of. So do you find that for the people who, you know, don't really have those traumas, you know, especially for smokers, overeaters, the very addictive behaviors, right? Not, not more of like the fears. What do you think is sort of the reason why they find themselves unable it's to break the bad habit? Sometimes it's self-soothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it doesn't have necessarily have to be a terrible trauma like sexual abuse or, you know, you know, loss of a loved one or something like yeah. that. But maybe just over time, the person accumulated the pattern of um, soothing themselves, say, with junk food. And hey, it's it's legal. It's immediate, you know, and it feels good in the short term and in the long term, you know, not so good. Definitely. With smoking, I, you know, it's interesting. There, there was a wonderful book. Uh, the guy's since passed called Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. I read Smokers it, yeah. are a special case because they get deceived into thinking it's calming them. And when you're talking about your, your and separated out from maybe from food because you do have to eat, but your, your drugs of choice, whether it's um, tobacco, alcohol, the illegal stuff, is a lot of times it's the substance after a while you have the habit creates that empty feeling. Yeah. And then you indulge and you go, Oh, I feel good now. This is relieving my stress. And when it's actually causing it. And, and I loved cars example. It's like wearing a too, too tight pair of shoes for the sole pleasure of taking them off. And you go, everybody's going, why are you doing that? Oh, it feels great when I stop. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of the, I think the addictive behaviors are like that. They actually create this cycle of tension that once you break past them, your life probably, you know, calms down quite a bit. I agree. I agree. He actually, in his book, he talked about sort of, uh, he described it as the monster, right? He yeah. talked about every time you smoke, you're, there's a little monster that develops inside yeah. of you that's saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. Right. And if you don't, if you don't feed them, then, um, then they, you know they annoy you. Yeah, exactly. Right. He keeps he keeps you know punching you. He keeps hitting you in the stomach. He keeps giving you those pangs, telling you to keep smoking. And I completely agree. I think that some people don't even realize it, and I think it's really difficult to realize it. Like you know, they they actually released a study. I forget who released it, but they said that smoking actually causes you more stress rather yes. than less. But smokers think that it causes them less stress. Yeah, because right? they got basically got tricked. You know, when you're yeah. talking about a smoker, for example, and say they're in their teens or 20s, first thing is they're going, I'm never going to get addicted. I'll be able to stop this whenever I want. Yeah. And then that little empty feeling creeps in. I, I describe it as the little pest because I, mm. I didn't like cars used of a monster. Monsters are kind of scary. But I, I, I sometimes even when I'm working somebody, I'll do my a very bad Joe Pesci impersonation. Hey, you over here, over here, over here. You know, kind of like this annoying little guy tapping you on the shoulder. Yeah. And you, you know, you really need to smack him on. But over time, yeah, your brain can get tricked. And, you know, so uh, once, and, and what you were referring to earlier, they did, that was a university study where they had people enroll in a stop smoking program and had a control group. But prior to that, they administered this like inventory for depression and anxiety. The ones who stopped were better a year later, far better emotionally really? than the people who continued to smoke. Yeah, their anxiety levels, sense. their depression levels went down. It makes sense, right? So yeah. I think I think one of the hardest parts of making someone change is that, you know, we naturally have egos, right? So, you know, yeah. you were saying it before and you, you just alluded to it now. It's like, you know, as you're trying to quit, right? Like you realize, right? Like you realize smoking is bad for me. Eating too much is bad for me. Spending all this time on social media, pornography, like all this stuff is really yeah. bad for me. But at the same time, there's not only is the subconscious part of you, like that little monster saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. But at the same time, your whole conscious brain is not in it, in it too. Right. There's that other part of you that says, you know what? I kind of like smoking, like smoking, you know, the rationalizations. Exactly. 
So, so what do you find is the best way to get rid of those rationalizations? Because obviously they're not. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And you know, one of the things is I've been doing this kind of change work for a long time. You really got to have somebody who's kind of broken through that a bit themselves, Mm. their own denial. And usually by the time they're calling a professional for help, they have acknowledged that there's a problem, which is, I think, awesome. takes a lot of bravery to do that. But yeah, going up to unwilling people, you know, uh, I'm trying to, it was the stages of change. I, I don't know that that's actually an interesting one to get into that these psychologists, I think Prochaska and D. Clemente, and it, they had this model that, you know, people are pre-contemplation, you know, they drink a fifth of Jack Daniels a day. I don't have a problem. Something's going to get you eventually. Then they go into contemplation, which is, okay, I know this isn't good for me. I'm going to check out maybe some resources and then they get into an action stage and then a maintenance phase. The people in free contemplation, you just kind of got to present the information and then back off because you're going to create a lot of reasons, probably dig it in deeper because like you mentioned the ego, they feel they have to defend it now. Yeah. Yeah. If you had as much stress as I did, you, of course you'd be doing the X, Y, and Z. And I think it's just letting people know that yes, there is help there, but if you try to work with somebody in pre-contemplation, you're just going to really uh, get yourself quite frustrated and probably irritate them too. So, so that's the thing. So how would somebody, so what you're sort of saying, and this is something I completely agree with, you can't really help someone unless they're at rock bottom, right? Cause pre-contemplation things aren't that bad yet. I do Sometimes agree. they are, but they're, 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 there's a switch that just seems to turn people like, you know, for some people it is. But then again, like if I've known people who work with like serious hardcore addicts, there's people who to all intents and purposes are rock bottom. They're living in their car. Their family can't stand them anymore. Yeah. But that's not low enough. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a very unique, I think, individual thing. What's a rock bottom? Some people, for example, will get spurred, you know, the, their doctor tells them, oh, you know, I think I'm going to put you on cholesterol meds. Oh, no, I'm going to get in shape. And they get in shape. Then there's yeah. other people who have heart attacks and they're not doing anything they're supposed to. So I, I, as much as this will sound funny, as much as it's pain to, pains me to do so, you got to respect people's sovereignty, I guess. You know, it's they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. And you can just only really be there for the ones who are, you know, willing to get helped. So for those who aren't willing to get help, and I think that's a big part of, you know, um, hypnosis, right? Where you need to actually help someone. And if their whole entire conscious brain isn't there, is there really nothing you could do to help them? Or do you, is there a way to sort of guide them towards like the right answer? Well, I think that that one comes under more of just a questioning process. Like um, really maybe without threatening them, like, you know, we should take this away from you. You need to change. You know, this is bad. This is wrong. What's your current thing doing for you? Hmm. And is there another way of going about getting that? And and usually the answers are, I need to calm myself or I need to feel better. I feel lonely. I feel like, you know, yeah. Open the dialogue. I, I would say with somebody who maybe is unwilling to change, but, uh, find out what, what the chances are that they think whatever they're doing, they, they may know it's wrong, but they, for them, somehow they've justified it as right for them. Definitely. And part you of know. that has to do with the ego, right? Part of it is like, yeah. you know, why would, why would you admit that you're wrong? You know, it's, it's very right. tough for, for some person, anyone to really do that. Right? Oh, yeah. so, Nobody wants to do that. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's also tough, you know, calling for help. So I think it's really cool as a, as a hypnotist, right? So you get to hit those people who are, and then you said that you have a screening process. You only yeah. get to hit those people who are fully in that, what was it, the conscious state or the... Well, they're just that they're on that, using that stages of change thing. They are really contemplation going into action. Yeah. They, they're willing to do some of their homework. They're not expecting me to wave the magic wand and, you know, say the magic words. They're looking for, you know, they want to do it. They need the help and they've reached out. Yeah. But, you know, like, oh, my, you know, my husband says I have to quit smoking. Send your husband in. Yeah. Because that's just going to probably not, you know, there's a, there's a funny old, uh, Irish saying that goes, never try to teach a pig to sing. 
it only uh, frustrates you and annoys the pig. The joke being that, you know, you can't make people do what they really don't want to do. But on the more positive thing, you know, where we can really help people is break past those beliefs that they can't change. Now, that's a different story. When the person says, I want to do it, but I don't believe I can. That's that that's the person that you really can help with hypnosis. And it, it can be quite dramatic. So what is that sort of like? Take me through, like, let's say I come in, I'm like, I really, because I have, I have friends who are like this. They're like, you know, I've, my friends have said, I've accepted that I'm going to be a lifetime smoker, even though I don't want to, because it's like, they, they don't believe that they can change. So if someone were to come into you and say something like that, what would this sort of, you know, rewiring process be? Well, the first one I would go like, okay, some, and I'm guessing just from there, these are relatively young people you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 18, 19 years old. Okay. And you know, you have a different perspective on life because I'm about three times older than that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) What's your evidence that you're going to be this lifetimer? You know, I I would probably start there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, just that the process is natural to change. And the, you know, the way you're going to feel at 40, believe me, is going to be a lot different than say you, how you feel at 20 and just the evidence. There's millions of people have stopped, you know, like I mentioned, I'm a lot older than you. When I was a kid, pretty much every adult smoked. Yeah. My parents smoked in the car with me. Thanksgiving dinners, there were ashtrays at the table. Yeah. It's not there anymore. You know, the people can and do change. Uh, a, a story I sometimes u- uh, use with people who haven't really gotten, it hasn't set in that, yeah, they're going to change over time is it's called the lost candy. And I'll have somebody, for example, in that situation, go imagine a five-year-old boy and he's walking down the sidewalk and he's eating a piece of candy and he trips a little and the candy flies into a mud puddle mm-hmm. and it's lost. And he is just beside himself. He's crying. This is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to him. Mm-hmm. Now imagine him 20 years later. He's 25 years old. Same thing. He's eating a piece of candy, walking down the sidewalk. He's not paying attention. Drops it, falls in a mud puddle. Hopefully he just shrugs his shoulders out, oh, geez, and continues on with this day. It's the same person, yeah. this, the same situation. Hopefully a 25-year-old isn't bursting into tears and having a tantrum. <laughs> You will change over time, even if you don't want to, actually, you know, just time takes its, you know, has its effects on us. Interesting. So then how do you actually, you know, for the people who are younger, right? For the people who, you know, they say they're going to change when they're 40, but you know, they they still want to enjoy their fun now. What is, what is your pitch to them to be like, no, 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 no change now. Like now's the time. It's, there's no, I I, I really probably somebody like that. I maybe would teach them. Uh, I don't know if I would really go after the behavior. Obviously, if it's not something that they're invested in that they want to work on, they might just need benefit from learning how to calm themselves naturally, which we can do with various self-hypnosis, mindfulness practices. And, you know, maybe down the road, you, you connect with me when you're ready to do something about that or if you don't do something about it yourself. But, yeah, that idea of, like, you know, I got to shake some sense into you, it doesn't really seem to work. Makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. It goes back to the Irish phrase. Exactly. Yeah, 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 right. You don't want to teach that pig to try to teach that pig to sing. You're just going to, you know, it's going to be frustrating for both of you. But, you know, when the person's ready, you know, when the person's ready. So uh, here's another question. You talked about mindfulness and mindfulness, you know, is very similar yes. to hypnosis. So would you say mindfulness is a type of hypnosis or are there sort of differences between the two? Well, mindfulness is just simply being in the present moment and becoming the observer of your thoughts and feelings rather than get enmeshed in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, And there's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of anxiety comes from when we really identify with thoughts that are worries about the future or our regrets of the past or just that urge in the moment. Because what you can learn with some practice is, okay, I have an urge to overeat right now. It doesn't mean I have to do it. Yeah. That can just be that thought or that feeling over there, kind of like watching leaves dropping into a stream. You know, you're detached. Those are my thoughts. Those are my feelings, but they're going to pass. Okay. A very famous saying from the 12 step groups, this too shall pass. 
And uh, what mindfulness is, once you kind of get the hang of it, not that anybody I think ever totally masters it, but just giving yourself that little distance that very often, and it seems, I think, younger people, they get very enmeshed with these feelings and these thoughts, and I have to do this right now. And it eventually, it maybe comes to the realization, actually, I don't. You know, I can sit with this uncomfortable feeling for a while and take, you know, choose to take care of myself, choose what they would call a valued path as opposed to just, oh, I had a thought, I had to do it. But I, I, I think that comes with, with, with time as well and maturity. So is hypnosis very similar to that? or is it yeah, yeah, hypnosis, in recent years, there, there, there's been a lot of, you know, mindfulness has become kind of a hot topic, so to speak. Definitely. And a lot of us are using integrating it in basically our client homework and our interventions because it's a great skill set that, you know, when the, after the person's left, they could do this for the rest of their life, which is you know, mm. pretty awesome. So it's definitely not a substitute for hypnosis, but at the same time, they complement each other. Yeah. They definitely complement each other. I I do notice that, you know, when we're, when I'm younger and a lot of my friends who do this, there's this sort of feeling when talking about mindfulness, how people sort of run away from their feelings. Right. So Mm -hmm. we were talking about how people, you know, they don't want to sit with those uncomfortable feelings yet. We also need to face those uncomfortable feelings. So do you think that mindfulness is a good way to sort of internalize those uncomfortable feelings and really like embrace the discomfort? Yeah. Accept them. Now accepting doesn't mean liking. Yeah. Oh great. I'm depressed or, Oh, my back is killing me or something. You know, no, it's just, it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting because a lot of the mindfulness practices derived from our Eastern religions and the Buddha had the quali- the, the quote of our suffering arises from resisting what is. Interesting. Interesting. And it, with mindfulness is, yeah, okay. I have an urge, you know, to overeat right now, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't have to give into that. Yeah. It's just a thought. It's just a feeling. And right now, actually, as long as I'm breathing, Right now, I'm okay. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if, if you're not doing mindfulness and you do that sort of, you know, and I think, you know, we talk about bad habits and bad habits are sort of a tactic to not confront the realities that face us. Oh, I'm stressed. Let me just take a smoke. Oh, I'm stressed. Let me yeah, just go right. on my phone, right? I'm stressed. Let me go eat. But at the same time, if you sort of take a mindfulness approach, then you're actually confronting the realities at the same time as you are, you know, being more present and avoiding right. stress being, in a more positive way. That's a good way. choice. Being, being more present. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that, you know, you talk about the Buddha and, you know, Buddha had, an incredible story, right? Do you know the entire story? Oh, yeah. Right. right. He renounced his riches and went and meditated in that cave and came across the noble truths and all that. Oh, yeah. sure. And even before that, right? So his father was, uh, was told before he had his child, it was, you know, your son is going to be, you know, a religious leader and he's going to be sort of like a God amongst men sort of, right? Mm-hmm. So, the dad essentially says, no, I don't, I don't want my son to be like that. Right. right. So what he does is he takes his son and he puts him in a city, a walled city. His dad literally created his own city and he took the most attractive. He took the most uh, youthful and he also took the healthiest of all of the people and invited them into the city. And they all lived within the city walls, nobody to come out. And the purpose of the father, his purpose was, I don't want to expose my son to any of the suffering of the world, because if I expose him to the suffering of the world and the problems, then he's going to feel this need to fix it. And then if he feels the need to fix it, he's going to become this God and I don't want him to become this God. So what he essentially does is every time that, you know, it happens every time that he feels that, you know, someone is dying in the city, he throws them out, they get out. But Buddha, you know, he reaches that point of maturity where he's like, you know what, father, I want to leave the city, right? I really want to do it. And this is essentially what we're talking about. I want to confront reality, right? So he says, I want to confront reality. And his dad goes, okay, sure, son, I will let you move outside the city, but I want to mediate it. So he walks, he takes him outside the city and essentially tries to show him exactly what it's like inside the city. No suffering, no pain, no anything like that. And in his multiple encounters, he does it eventually three times. He experiences someone who's blind, someone who's dying, you know, all these things. And, um, 
And he finds that, you know what, life is in all of these terrible things, right? Like life, life is in all perfect. There are terrible things that, exa- that come from it. So then right after he experiences the person who's dying, he runs right back into the city and starts crying because he's like, I, I've never seen that before. I didn't know that people die. I didn't know that people suffer. Right. So I think the story of the Buddha really matches up with the story of mindfulness when you're saying, you know what, yeah. I want to confront the, the realities that exist in front of me and I want to take them fully inside of me. I want to take them full on. And when I do that, then not only do you, you know, you avoid, you know, the smoking and the, all the bad habits that come with it, but you also become a stronger person. Right. Like Absolutely. if you, if you try to run away from all the problems in your life, you know, Oh, I'm stressed. Let me go smoke and things like that. If you try to run away from your problems, then it, the thing is you're not accepting reality and you're, you're allowing for yourself to accept sort of a weak solution and you become, that's weaker. absolutely true. Yeah. Because the, that short term avoidance actually has a very high price tag. Definitely. If, if, you know, if you, you step back and look at it, so it's true. I think, I think the biggest problem, and when I come to, when I come to this, I think it really sort of bothers me. It's like, so I've been trying intermittent fasting, for example, right? Oh, okay. Intermittent fasting is eight hours. You only in the eight hour window. And you could say this for almost any habit, right? I try to create a habit off of it and you reach the 10th hour, right? To the point where you're like, Ooh, I might break this habit. And you run into the problem of if I break it for only today, then what would be the problem, right? If I break it only right now and I continue on that path, then things will all be okay, right? Right. So what, what do you believe is sort of like the best way to go up to someone and just be like, you know what? Every single decision that you make matters because if you break it today, then you're probably going to break it tomorrow and things like that. Right, right. That, that today matters. It's interesting you said the intermittent fasting because I've done that too. And yeah. actually with that one, there, there's a mindfulness-based approach is embracing the feeling of being hungry because we're taught that, oh, that's a bad thing. It just means yeah. actually your digestion is, you know, working yeah <laughs> but uh but what you were saying about like people who just wouldn't be willing to do that or for the people who are you know let's say as it goes with any habit right you know you say you know if i smoke another day or if i quit you know three days from now or if i you know only smoke a little bit or if i only break this intermittent fasting for one day right what is the sort of repercussions that comes from it yeah yeah well that, that that's a person who's really hasn't put a value on being disciplined yet you know i think discipline has a negative connotation it doesn't have it's really a gift you give yourself mm. uh with the, with the addictions you know there, there's one thing is like and this is sometimes I think where it's a little easier for older people. Like, you know, you hear the, 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 the saying of the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And with a smoker, okay. A 20 year old, they haven't really done enough that they're, they're likely nothing's bad going to happen. But you know, if you're having a pack a day is a little over 7,000 a year. And by the time you're 50, that's like a crazy number. It's like a half million. That straw yeah. is coming pretty soon. It's true. Uh, but, but, but then again, I think too. say with a younger person, it's okay. The chances of you say being a 25 year old and having a heart attack or getting lung cancer are actually pretty remote, but is it really being the best version of you? How's your athletic endurance, you know, and all the other yeah. things that should be of value in younger years, overeating that, that that's not letting you really do that. So maybe it's also not just so much breaking the bad habits is, pursuing excellence that you're going to yeah. be disciplined and try to be that best version of yourself, which doesn't include a lot of this nonsense people give into. Well, do you find that for smokers for over years for pretty much everything, there are residual effects. So for example, for smokers, right, they have a residual effect of not only are they struggling with lungs for academic performance, uh, for athletic performance, but at the same time, they also have less focus and they also have yeah, you know, right. other things. Right. So you want to really sell maybe when you are trying to help somebody who is in a resistant place right now, mm-hmm. that they're not just giving up something. So you know what? People don't like to give things up. That's a, sure. a phrase I tell people to get away from. You know, I have to give up, you know, my junk food. Okay. You're not going to like doing that, but maybe it was time to let it go because you're, you want to go somewhere else. that's a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in fact, it's, it's a, you, you kind of stimulated something there. It's an, I, I, I have a little book I have on Amazon of these healing stories. And sometimes when somebody will be kind of like at a cross thing, oh, I really want to, you know, overeat, but I want to be in good shape and all that. And what do you got? You got two conflicting value systems. And I'll tell them the story of the monkey drawer. And it kind of goes like this, that long ago in the villages of India, there was a problem. They were expanding the villages, but uh, they were displacing monkeys. And contrary to popular opinion, monkeys are not really cute, cuddly creatures. They're actually kind of nasty. Yeah. And they were coming into the villages and they were raising all sorts of havoc, wrecking stuff. And there was a a problem though because they given their religion they did were you know vegetarian they didn't want to go out and shoot or poison them but the story goes that this guy came up with a brilliant solution he got a, a clay pitcher like you'd serve juice in and he tied the handle to a tree rather firmly and then he'd drop an orange down the neck of the jar or the the vase and the monkey would come along and he'd reach in and he'd grab the orange and he'd try to pull his hand out. But as long as he clung to the orange, his hand got stuck. Why? Because his hand was now too big holding that orange. His hand oh. went in okay, but he couldn't pull it out with, and hold the orange. Mm. So the story goes, the monkey would sit there for a long time going, eat, eat, because it wanted two things at the same time that it couldn't have. He wanted yeah. his freedom, but he also wanted that orange. And the story goes that somebody would come along, put a leash on the monkey, break the vase and let the monkey have the orange. But people have said that we can make a monkey out of ourselves when you're trying to hold on to two things at the same time that you just can't have. Yeah. Well, there's a sort of, you know, within, within stories, for example, you see this sort of death and rebirth sort of concept. And I talk, I talk about this a lot where, you know, your experience, you have to sort of kill off that part of yourself. Right, that bad part of yourself and you can't really have you know the the orange which we could say is yeah. the bad yeah. habit and the instant you, gratification right so so do you do you subscribe to that belief do you subscribe to the fact that you need to kill off that bad part of yourself and the fact that you really can't have moderation well for some yeah some addictive behaviors absolutely it's actually easier to stop it all together yeah. Uh, drinking and smoking are two things that spring to mind immediately. <clears throat> Excuse me. People usually are much going to find it a lot easier to stop altogether. I think it comes back to once again, that realization that you can and do change and whatever mindset you had when you first decided to use or to get into that habit, isn't the same one you have now, hopefully. Yeah. And it's okay like to forgive person. yourself. That was a different you. It made sense to you at age 15 to do X, Y, or Z, but okay. Now you're 35. Does that still, you, do you want to be bound by that teenager's decisions? It's true. It's true. You know, recognizing right. your personal evolution. So you're hoping that, you know, that that's the second part of the, the death, right? After you die, you experience a sort of rebirth, right? As, rebirth, as a rebirth, right? The Phoenix, the yeah, Phoenix exactly. rising. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You're, you're literally a new person, right? You know, right. So if, no. if you're going through, you know, sort of a death and rebirth, the only problem is you can't have those, you know, residual parts of you, right? The, the residual, Oh yeah. You know, I still, I still smoke once in a while. And I think, you know, that's, just, that's the hardest problem with overeating, for example, eating unhealthily. It's like, we don't know where exactly that falls on the spectrum, right? Like do people have, for, for example, like obese people, do they have a food addiction an unhealthy food? Like, is that a thing? Right. Like, I think that's something that we haven't really figured out as a society. Probably. I, yeah. Because the obesity rates have also just climbed because the food supply has gotten altered. Definitely. Uh, you know, Processing. we don't have to get as much exercise as previous generations. You know, we're much more physically passive. It's a challenge. You know, I think there are definitely people who, you know, eat for com comfort. And also it may be at some point that, that regulation in the brain saying I had enough kind of got turned off. Yeah. But that's, that's an interesting one though too. And I, I do get some people for that issue, but it's something I've, I've uh, studied a bit is that they talk about the adverse childhood event. It's a, su a survey they did. And they found that a lot of those people are walking around like with residual trauma from childhood. Really? 
Yeah. What kind of what kind of trauma is it? Like a Freudian, anything like from, from trauma, or it could be physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, an unstable household. You, you'll see it in a lot of the literature. ACE, AC, adverse childhood events, and there's a de- direct correlation between that and problematic behaviors later on in life, and even some physical illnesses. They think the stress the person's stress uh, load just got so high and never, dis- never turned down, never down regulated. Yeah. I think also the fact now that we have companies, you know, that are really trying to over accentuate it, for example, you know, every food that we have now, not only is it processed, but it has sugar, artificial sweeteners, oh, that yeah. are, which by definition turn off that sort of, you know, I'm, you know, you're full sort of mind. Right, I'm full and satisfied and that's enough. Right. Go do something else. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's a very calm. I don't think there's a simple answer though with the obesity thing, really. I completely so, agree. I, yeah. I think, I think it's tough. And then also, you know, you look at the marshmallow tusks. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of that too, right? Which one is that? So you, you'll what definitely that? know it. Sorry. It's um, yeah. the marshmallow test is essentially they go up to four year olds, five year olds. Oh yeah. And they give they give them a marshmallow, right. they sit it right in front of them, right on their desk right here. And they go, I'll be back. If you could sit here and not eat the marshmallow, then you're yeah. going to get two marshmallows, right? Which is essentially, I'm putting off the instant gratification for something later. And the kids who actually did put off the instant gratification, you know, they're sitting there, they're picking at the marshmallow, they're pointing at it, they're staring right. at it. They find that the best ones were the ones that distracted themselves. So instead of staring at the marshmallow, they're sitting there, wow, this wall looks really nice. You yeah, know, this, yeah. This room looks really incredible. And the ones that actually found a way to, you know, distract themselves were the ones who actually succeeded better in their lives. They tracked yeah, throughout yeah. their lives and yeah. said that, you know, they were the ones who put off the instant gratification. So there's definitely a question as to whether or not it's all genetic, you know, right. whether or not, or yeah. A hybrid not, like, of, yeah, of factors in that kid's life or parental examples that maybe weren't, you know, the best. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an interesting, definitely an interesting thread of thought definitely. there. I completely agree. I think it's so tough to, you know, there's two things that sort of like a society could do. You know, there's the one that I think is important and, you know, eliminating the cause for it. And then there's another thing of what you do, right. And you're, you're helping the people who have already developed those addictions, those, you know, bad habits and are trying to sort of, you know, fix themselves. And I think, I think hypnosis from what I've heard, I think, I think it's an incredible you know, it's an incredible way to help those people because you're essentially rewiring their brain. You're doing right. it from a top-down approach. Right. Yeah. No, it definitely, it definitely can make a huge difference. Uh, you know, if anybody, if you know anybody who's interested, always, you know, tell them I'm open to answer the questions. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think I think we should wrap up this interview. Yeah. But if there is, first of all, tell everybody how they can get in contact with you yeah, tell sure. them if they're in that, the area. Yeah, no, definitely. And definitely. Thanks for having me on this. This, this was a new experience for me, uh, but uh, they can call me directly at 732-714-7040. There's also the NJ Hypno website, njhypno.com. Yeah. And, you know, I, I offer a free 15, 20 minute consultation. If somebody's curious, it doesn't obligate you. I want to make sure I'm working with people that can be helped and we would just take it from there. So, but thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I yeah, hope, me, me as well. Yeah, exactly. All right. I really hope that, you know, we could develop a greater connection. All right. Okay. And good luck with your book. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye.